This podcast is brought to you by Belong, winner of Money Magazine's Best Value NBN Plan for the second year running. Hi, welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm Adrian Lowe. This episode, we hone in on the inner city apartment markets in our biggest cities to look at why some sellers are copying losses of up to 40% on their properties. Then we look at some of the hidden costs of buying a property. One sector of the property market particularly hard hit by the effects of the pandemic is the inner city apartment markets in our biggest cities. The lack of international students has been particularly blamed for high vacancy rates in the rental market to offload their investments. With me to break down what's happening and how apartments are faring compared to other parts of the market is Elizabeth Redman, Domain's Deputy News Editor. Elizabeth, welcome back to Property Unpacked. Thanks for having me, Adrian. What are the major reasons we're seeing high vacancy rates for city apartments and how is this affecting the potential sale of these properties? So as you mentioned, the border closure, so the lack of international students has been really significant for our CBDs because it's been more than a year now since international students haven't been able to travel to Australia and obviously um in our major cities, we've had a, a building boom in recent years of, you know, putting up new apartment towers on the skylines to try and house um, not necessarily international students, but a lot of them have been international students. And it's one of Australia's biggest export industries. Um, and that kind of shock to the sector of not having those students able to travel here because of their health situation has left a lot of inner city apartments sitting empty and finding it quite hard to find a tenant. At the same time, of course, what happened last year is that there was quite a sudden closure of hospitality industries and also quite a quick shift to CBD workers working from home. So even if maybe someone wasn't an international student, but maybe they were working in a hospitality job, living in the city close to their work, suddenly being without work, it made a lot more sense to move in with friends, move in with family. And uh, that kind of drift back to the CBD has been pretty slow so far, kind of a year on. Mm. And one of the cities that seems to be most affected by this is Melbourne, and that makes most sense when you look at the length of the lockdown in Melbourne last year compared to other capitals. What are some of the examples we're seeing in the inner city Melbourne market, and what does the data tell us about how people who are trying to sell apartments are faring? So Melbourne's had a particularly big building boom in uh, recent years. Anyone who's spent a lot of time there will see the changes in the skyline and the huge number of apartments. Um, it isn't new that um, investors have been selling apartments at a loss because they've realised that they've bought these apartments off the plan and there's kind of a developer profit built in. They go to sell them. There's not so many buyers. But we have definitely seen a strong trend uh, post-COVID of investors who can't get a tenant. They try and hold on for a while. Perhaps they drop their asking rents, but eventually if they're not able to fill their apartment, there's only so long that someone can pay a mortgage on an investment property without having a renter there. And so we've seen apartment owners in Melbourne selling inner city units at quite steep losses, in some cases up to 40%. We've heard um, from 
some real estate agents in the inner city of examples such as a one-bedroom apartment in Swanston Street, for example, that sold for just $180,000. And that's 30% less than the owners paid for it. Not recently, but 15 years ago. So if you think about kind of investing your money over 15 years, um, you know, it would have been probably doing quite a lot better to just have it sitting in the bank earning barely any interest. So that's um, quite a challenge for anyone who's been an investor in that market. Um, and, and that's, you know, not an isolated example. We've heard, for example, a studio apartment in Carlton sold in November for 141000 That's a 38% loss on the amount it was purchased for in, in 2007. There was another one in Collins Street that sold earlier this year for a 36% loss. So quite steep discounts for some of these owners. We have seen that CBD apartment prices overall haven't fallen yet. They've risen just a couple of percent over the past 12 months when we compare all the sales of the past year to a year before, remembering that the housing market was weak in 2019. But we really have to ask whether they can stay there if we are starting to see results like this. And also when Melbourne CBD apartment rents are down so sharply, almost 30% in the past year, we have to ask how long these investors are able to um, hold on to these properties. Yeah, it's really difficult to grapple with, I guess, for them. You know, you can kind of try to wait it out, but there's no clear answers at the moment. And I guess that's the same for so many people, you know, as we continue to deal with the effects of the pandemic. So if we take a look at Sydney, are we seeing the same issues in the CBD there? So the difference with Sydney, even though Sydney's a very international city and, and very affected as well by um, the loss of international students, Sydney didn't have as long a lockdown or as severe a lockdown. Um, it locked down uh, in March, April last year and other than that has largely been able to remain somewhat open uh, with the exception of, you know, there was some stay-at-home orders for the Northern Beaches over Christmas, but the CBD has um, been able to come start coming back to life a little bit earlier than Melbourne. Life has been able to return to normal a little bit. Obviously, there's still a lot of working from home and international students can't come back, but it is a little bit further advanced and we have seen, although rents have dropped sharply, apartment rents in the Sydney CBD are down about 17% in the past year. It's not as deep as the drop that we have seen in Melbourne and I think that that makes sense when you consider the health situation there. The rental vacancy rate in inner Sydney is also elevated but it's nowhere near as high as it is in Melbourne um, and Sydney CBD apartment prices have ticked up. They're up about 6.5% in the past year so it'll be pretty interesting to see whether that can continue. And I think also there's a, a massive diversity in sort of the housing types. There's a lot of smaller apartments in the Melbourne CBD than perhaps there are compared to Sydney, which has sort of has that more slightly spread out residential element to its inner city area. And that desirability, I guess, of, you know, maybe being in a luxury building near the water, right, in the Sydney CBD. There's a lot to be said for uh, Sydney Harbour versus the Yarra River, isn't there? <laughs> pretty different. Yeah, <laughs> just a touch. Okay, so let's have a look at another river city. Let's go to Brisbane. A bit of a two-speed market that's continuing. We know that inner city unit prices 
in Brisbane have been on the way down for quite a while since the boom of around 2016. That's continuing, but the rents are picking up for those inner city apartments. Can you tell us a bit about this and why are Brisbane apartments so cheap? Mm. So this has been also a, a pretty long-term trend in Brisbane, which didn't just start with COVID, but there has been so much building of new apartment towers in inner Brisbane, in and around the CBD, but also in some of the inner suburbs there. And just a kind of sprouting of, you know, apartment towers with lots of one bedrooms, you know, quite small, quite cheap, what we might refer to as investor grade product. And so it's not a surprise that Brisbane units peaked, the prices peaked in 2016 and they just have never recovered. They've been declining. They're lower over the past year and they're about 4% lower than they were at the peak and not seeming to kind of change direction anytime soon. So even though there's, you know, been a another trend to working from home in Brisbane, there's kind of that longer term structural story of all the supply there, you know, which then has been kind of combined with the effects of COVID as well. So if you look at those rental prices versus purchase prices, do we think that maybe like Brisbane apartments could be a good purchase for a savvy investor? I think if you were buying a Brisbane apartment, I think you'd want to be bold and to be thinking long term. So we have seen Brisbane rents rise over the past year. They're up almost 4% even though sale prices haven't risen. So if you're looking for a rental return and you're happy that, you know, you maybe don't want to sell for a while and perhaps you have the view that Brisbane will be a more attractive place to live, then it might be something that you're interested in looking at. But I think that you wouldn't want to be perhaps trying to make a quick flip. I'm not sure that now would be the time to think that you could buy a one-bedroom apartment in Fortitude Valley or somewhere and, you know, flip it for some huge gain. I think that's the challenge, isn't it, though, with generally apartment purchasing it, is that people looking for a quick bucket doesn't really lend itself to flipping like house flipping mm. does than that sort of broader trend, does it? It's more a question of, okay, what return can I get on this money? Perhaps I'm thinking about whether to have my money in the bank versus to have it in an investment apartment and where somewhere where I can buy a solid apartment that will be attractive to tenants and where rents are ticking up and where I'm confident that I'm going to be able to get that return over time. If we can return to Melbourne, what are we seeing on the horizon for the future? I mean, there seems to be a decline in the rental price, as you say, but the median apartment price in Melbourne is at a record high. So where are we looking for the market to go for the rest of the year? I think what we wouldn't be surprised to see is a continuation of that shift perhaps from the CBD to the inner suburbs. So it will be maybe more attractive to live in an apartment in a small block, in an inner suburb, you know, close to transport, close to shops, all of those kinds of amenities that are so popular. And uh, it would make a lot of sense to look at buying an apartment like that rather than an apartment in a big tower in the CBD. You know, the CBD is not quite as busy as it was. You know, there's not that kind of rental demand. Um, and so whether, you know, investors or first home buyers actually are looking to buy apartments, I think it would make sense that demand would be strong in those kind of 
older style small block suburban locations especially for first home buyers who are interested in buying a house in melbourne right now prices have been rising so fast and are almost at a million dollar median so it would make sense to think well you know can i get a more affordable apartment that's in an area where i'd like to live and not have to pay as much yeah absolutely and it's interesting you mentioned first home buyers because i was going to ask if we look elsewhere around the country what are apartment prices doing versus rental prices? And are there other pockets of opportunity for first-time buyers or uh, for investors even? Mm. So this is an interesting one because, of course, if you're a first-time buyer, it might depend on where you want to live. But, you know, if you're an investor uh, thinking about where the different markets are at or all prices everywhere have been rising, but where are they in their cycle? So Perth apartments are an interesting one because prices there are still not actually back to their peak. Apartments are at their highest level since 2018. But that um, city is really seeing a very strong recovery of the resources industry, which was in the doldrums for quite some time. And rental vacancy rates have been extremely low in Perth because there's been a lot of expats moving back, you know, people staying in Perth because of state border closures who otherwise might have lived somewhere else and flown in to work in the resources sector. They've had to stay in Perth instead. It's just a lot of people wanting to live in Perth right now. And there was an eviction moratorium for a long time, which has now lifted. And so landlords are in a position to perhaps ask a little bit more for their investment property and there's a lot of potential tenants coming their way. So that might be kind of an interesting opportunity for potential investors to think about and to think about, you know, how much confidence they have in the strength of that resources recovery, how much, you know, demand from China there's going to be for our steel if we keep digging rocks out of the ground and, and selling them. So. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting market to watch for the rest of the year because, as you say, there are changes with state border closures, there's questions around how long the international borders will stay closed. I think the apartment market is one that we can just potentially watch, you know, with interest. Mm. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us on Property Unpacked. Thanks for having me. It's really easy to get caught up in the excitement of buying a property. But what many buyers often forget is that it's not just the price paid for said property that's important to budget for. There are all sorts of associated costs with buying. And because lots of them aren't particularly exciting, they can easily be overlooked at the buyer's peril. To discuss these hidden or ignored costs, we're joined by Domain Advice Editor Daniel Butkovich. Dan, welcome back to Property Unpacked. Thanks for having me. Now, some people, Dan, are probably rolling their eyes at the idea of forgetting parts of a property transaction. But how easy is it to be sucked into the hype and excitement of the transaction and overlook the technical details? Look, it's very easy. Um, A lot of people are really focused on that search. They're focused on the price that they hope to pay for a property that they do find. And if you've never bought a property before, you might not be fully aware of everything that's actually involved. There's a whole lot of due diligence that you have to do before you commit to buy a property. So that's all your checks to make sure you're making a really good informed decision. And then there's also settlement. And so that's when you actually pay for the property and it becomes yours. And there's a lot of things that happen at that stage that do have a cost attached to them. Now, stamp duty is often easily remembered because there's so much discussion about it and it is a pretty big upfront cost. But what are some of the other costs we might encounter on the legal side? Okay, so conveyancing is the big one. So that's basically the transfer of the property 
from the seller to the buyer and your conveyancer or, or solicitor will um, provide your legal representation in, in that part of the deal. So essentially what a conveyancer will do is, is review the contract to make sure it's fair and explain any of the terms and conditions, things like easements, you know, which could be like a stormwater drain or, or, or a right of way for accessing the property. There could also be covenants in the contract, which could have, you know, be restrictions on the way the property can be modified, things like that. But the conveyancer or your solicitor will also make legal inquiries about the property to the, the vendor's conveyancer or solicitor on your behalf. So, so um, they'll provide specific legal advice around the transaction in that regard. Um, and they'll also actually coordinate the whole process of transferring money from yourself and your lender to the seller um, and transferring that ownership of the property to you. And, and so typically conveyancing will cost somewhere between Twelve hundred to about two and a half thousand dollars. It really depends on the conveyancer you choose. Kind of adds up, doesn't it? Especially when you start to add in things like other costs, like inspections. They can kind of add up as well. That's right. Um, Look, if you're really serious about buying a specific property and you're not a builder, like most of us aren't, it's really wise to commission an independent building and pest inspection before you bid or before you make an unconditional offer. And so, what that actually involves is um, a professional building inspector. Going through the property, looking for you know potential hidden problems like structural damage or rising damp or termite infestation and just general building defects and wear and tear, just so you know what you're getting into. And so the cost of an inspection like this can can vary, but you're generally looking at somewhere between four hundred and five hundred dollars, and that includes an inspection and, and a report um, detailing all this information. And it sounds like a lot of money, but you know if you really think about it, four hundred dollars it's cheap insurance. Um, if if you're buying a house that you know, needs to be restumped or it needs a new roof put in or, or all kinds of big problems, they're going to cost a lot more than $400 to fix. So, so it's cheap insurance. The other thing you have to think about is if you're uh, buying an apartment, a strata report, um, it's going to be a little bit cheaper than a, a building and pest inspection. It's about the $300 mark. I mean, that sort of looks at any defects or issues with the building as a whole. It looks at the financial health of the complex. There's enough money in the, the sinking fund to cover maintenance, repairs, or upgrades, things like the lift, those big expensive problems that might come up for every 10 years, um, and any, any ongoing issues with the building as well. And we've definitely seen some of those issues around strata come up, particularly in Sydney and in other parts of the country recently, isn't it? So I guess it is really worthwhile paying to understand what you're getting into. Is there a way to make sure you're getting a good inspection? Look, if you're uh, looking at reputable companies that have a, a good track record, they're basically putting their, their name on the line. So, um, uh, yeah, making sure that you're, you're choosing a reputable um, inspection company to go with. You will also find a lot of the time, um, it's not super common, but a lot of the time vendors will offer pre-purchase inspection for free as part of the property. A lot of the time that can be fine, but just use your judgment there. Make sure it's a reputable company. There are some options sometimes where you see a, a pre-purchase inspection offered by a vendor where you know you can pay a cheaper fee if you're a um, potential buyer, say $50, and then if you are the eventual successful purchaser, you pay that full fee. So there are you know a couple of different options there, but it's always about you're making sure it's a, a reputable company that, that's going to uh, go through and find any of these potential hidden problems. I guess then you have to also think about, you said cheap insurance before, but you should probably look at general insurance as well. As a buyer, is there a particular type of insurance you should be looking for besides your, you know, your home insurance? Yeah. So look, if you are purchasing a property and you are getting a home loan for that property, 
the bank is going to want that property to have insurance. So building insurance is the main one. Essentially, what you're looking at is, is insurance for, for the, the structure of the building to protect it in the event of natural disaster, fire or flood. Essentially, the bank wants to make sure that the building is, is protected, that the value of the property is protected. Um, and so that's usually a condition of the home loan, having that insurance in place. That being said, it's generally a good idea to have building and contents insurance. It's cheaper if you combine the two. And it's just the, the safer way to protect your home and your personal belongings. Just sort of overwhelmed because when you lay it all out like this, it's starting to sound quite expensive on top of the already expensive cost of purchasing a property. So how much more is a general rule of thumb? Should people be factoring into their budgets to pay for all of this? Okay, look, if you go through and add it up, you've got about, say, conservatively budget $2,000 or so for conveyancing. There's also a, probably a couple of home loan charges you're going to be hit with. There's a mortgage registration fee of about $120 to $190. You've got about maybe $400 for a home loan establishment fee. You might even have a valuation fee in there of about $300 from the lender. Throw in at least $1,000 for insurance. You're already at about $4,000 to begin with, and we haven't even factored into those pre-purchase inspections. And so if you think about it, you know, you might fall in love with one or two different properties and miss out. So you, you have to factor in potentially getting an inspection done for a property that you might not end up buying. So, so I would sort of mentally set aside $2,000 for those pre-purchase inspections. So if you conservatively budget somewhere around the five to $6,000 mark um, for all those costs that come up, that'll probably cover you. But that's not accounting stamp duty. Um, that's going to vary, vary a lot based on the value of the property. It's going to, you know, whether you're accessing any first home buyer schemes or incentives or anything like that. What I would recommend is to talk through all these costs with your mortgage broker or your lender because they're going to, you know, have a clear idea having done this day in, day out, what are all the costs that you're going to be up against specifically for the kinds of properties that you're looking at. And when you're going through that pre-approval process, they're going to actually put a estimated figure against all those costs and that'll really help your budget for them. And I guess, as you say, if you are you know, in love or trying to suss out several different properties and you want to do these inspections on all of them, it's a fair bit more if you've got a few in line you know, on your shortlist. Yeah, that's right. So a lot of people tend to actually you know, wait until a little later sort of in the campaign um, to do these inspections. That being said, in Sydney and Melbourne, a lot of properties are selling before auction. So that's something to consider that you might just want to be ready to go a little bit earlier in the campaign in case it comes to it, in case the agent's sort of asking for offers and is potentially going to sell the property quickly. So it does pay to be prepared. But yeah, it is something you just have to factor into the whole process that you may end up paying for these inspections and, and costs and things a couple of times before you actually find the one. Sounds a lot like dating, Dan. <laughs> And are any of these things that you've mentioned, are they negotiable? And what happens if you try to skimp in this department? Well, well look, some uh, would be negotiable. I would advise anyone to, to shop around. So, you know, conveyancing, as I mentioned, is one that can range, you know, $1,000 between between different kinds of conveyances or, or a conveyancer and a solicitor. So I would shop around. You, you want to make sure you're taking into account recommendations, someone that works in your local area, someone has experience with the type of property you're buying. You can also shop around for insurance. That'll vary a lot between insurers and it will vary a lot between different properties as well. So just keep that in mind. If you are looking at home loans, it is so competitive right now. So some lenders will be offering promotions to waive some of those fees that come up, so, such as the establishment fee, which will save you know $400 or so. The one thing I wouldn't skimp on is the pre-purchase inspections, especially if it's your first home. You're probably not going to be all that experienced to know what to look for. So you know, if you're worried about spending $400 on a report, 
then you're definitely going to be worried if all of a sudden you have to spend $40,000, you know, getting something major fixed like termite damage or, 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 you know, something structural for the property. So that's the last thing you want to be, uh, want to happen in, if you're buying a first home to be in that tough financial position. So yeah, I wouldn't skimp on the pre-purchase building inspections. So much to think about, Dan, as always. Thank you so much for joining us on Property Unpacked. No worries. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Belong, winner of Money Magazine's Best Value NBN plan for the second year running. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and take a look at our previous episodes. Our producer is Hayley Cools, with editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks for listening. Chat to you again soon. 